just thought it was was a pretty cool story. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I got one thing to say, though, which is don't you remember Jurassic Park and Jeff Goldblum saying nature will find a way? <laughs> and maybe that is true. <laughs> Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is confused by the latest health study as I am by how we managed to get to 100 episodes. Can you guys believe we've been doing this now since we've gotten to 100 episodes? It's amazing. Oh. How many years has it been? It's like at least two years, maybe I, more year. I I believe I was 18 when we started this podcast. Oh, man, you were so young, so naive. I was. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Well, now that we've we've cast our pods, what 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 happens next? I mean, what what's what's the next big thing? I don't think I've done a hundred of anything. Yeah, fair enough. I don't know what's next. I think uh, world domination. All right, what else? I like that. Anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health. I am here with Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health as well. Mm, yes, hello. Happy and happy 100. Happy 100. And Danthea, also from the Department of Global Health. Hi, Matt. Hi, Chris. All of hello. these here at the BU School of Public Health. Now, I should say, my sister-in-law, who's a, a an avid listener, I think she is our listener, <laughs> said that for our 100th, we should all get together back in the godly studio. But uh, clearly that didn't manage to happen. Yeah. Well, it bad. will happen soon, It could right? happen too, couldn't it? We could do it. We could do it. We're getting yeah. there. We're definitely nearing that that stage. Anyway. We just we just had a big departmental meeting where we were told that we have been summoned and that our, our, our physical presence is, is desired and, and actually required. Yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to understand exactly when I'm supposed to be where or when, but I'm sure I will be able to figure it out. Just follow the crowd. I will just follow the crowd who is standing out in front of my house. Absolutely. <laughs> so as a reminder, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org where you will find all kinds of interesting – what are you going to find there? Are you going to find – Chris, have you been on the website in a while? Did you find the, anything interesting? This is, this is Leslie Tellolians? Yes, yeah, it's a gossip page. It's like a it's like a blog, right? Ex exactly. You've got That's it. That's why it's it's Tellolian. Exactly. Or you'll find Nick. You made Nick laugh with that one. At least somebody <laughs> laughed at that. I I heard crickets. Yeah. <laughs> Those were cicadas, Don. Yeah. Oh, oh. Yeah. And uh, also, if you uh, are so willing and inclined, head on over to iTunes or. Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from and give us a rating that'll help other people find us. So now let's go on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we're going to look at a study on the benefits of ear tubes. Now I have to, full disclosure, I had seven sets of ear tubes as a kid. So I have ah, a- Ah, that's the reason you chose this article. That may, may, may have had a little to do with it. Seven? But no, I, seven sets, yeah. Wow. Do those now, hurt when they place them? Uh, I was unconscious, so I don't think so, but I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't in any pain when I woke up. So no. So then in our second part of a podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about the role of international funding of research. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will get into some of the things that make us laugh out loud, or as the segment implies, some of the things that blew us away. So let's get into segment one. So the article we're going to look at looked at the effectiveness of ear tubes for, for kids with ear infections. 
published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was entitled Tympanostomy Tubes or Medical Management for Recurrent Acute Otitis Media, so ear infections. Uh, it was by first author Alejandro Hoberman of the Departments of Pediatric and Pediatrics and Otolaryngology at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine over there in the fine state of Pennsylvania. Let me give you a few headlines on this one. So Eureka Alert said no lasting benefit to tubes over antibiotics for childhood ear infections. Medscape says ear tubes no better than antibiotics for otitis media. And drugs.com says tympanostomy tube placement no better for recurrent otitis media. I also I have to say I, I heard about this on two different local news stations. So this one did get uh, a bit more play than what I found on online. But Don, can you talk us through what they did in this study? Sure, Matt. So I, I think it's important for our listeners to know that acute otitis media is, is an infection of the middle ear, and it's actually a, a, a fairly common illness. Uh, Matt, you've experienced it personally. I, I haven't. I don't know whether you have, Chris, but there's about 600,000 episodes per year, mostly in children and in children usually less than a year of age, but that's 600,000 in children who are under the age of 50. So there's a substantial morbidity and it you know it, it it can result in a lot of pain a lot of morbidity it can cause eardrum perforation it can cause loss of hearing mm-hmm. and a lot of times kids can have more than one episodes multiple episodes of recurrent otitis media which is which is really what they were looking at in this particular study and and ha- having having been through an infectious disease fellowship and a, and a career of of uh, infectious disease acute otitis media has always been sort of controversial in terms of of uh, how to how to go about treating it, especially in those cases where there aren't a lot of episodes in a row. And in fact, in some areas, like I believe, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but in Scandinavia, there are countries where they they don't treat acute otitis media until there are some serious sequelae. So the the management has been controversial. So these authors citing the fact that there have not been a whole lot of prior studies and the prior studies that were done were not of the highest quality and were plagued with small sample size or they were done prior to the advent of really effective vaccines to prevent the bacteria colonization that causes the acute otitis media, that they would set about to try to to do a definitive study comparing medical management, which is essentially antibiotics, and tube placement for children that have had several episodes already of acute otitis media. And, and, and maybe we should just mention, or maybe Don, you, you could explain what is the, the, the rationale for tube placement? Like what was it trying to accomplish? Yeah, yeah. So, so anytime there's an infection in a closed space, antibiotics are are sort of mild to moderately effective, and and really the most effective thing, like an abscess, is to drain the material, the infected material or the pus, which is really just a collection of white blood cells, out of that closed space, and that's really the most important thing. So, if you have a pocket of pus in your between your lung and your rib cage, we'll put a tube in so that that pus can drain out. And the the antibiotics are sort of an adjunct, but that really is the mainstay of therapy. So the thinking here is let's put a small incision in the eardrum and stick a little tube in there, which goes into the middle ear, that that confined that confined area, so that that tube can allow the the collection of white cells and bacteria or pus drain out, and that's really the primary therapy. And then the uh, antibiotics are sort of an adjunct to that. 
So, so, so this group was trying to uh, set it up and try to figure out which was better. So to do that, they enrolled children at several studies in Pittsburgh, D.C., and Kentucky. And their intent was to enroll 250 kids who have recurrent otitis media, which they defined as three episodes in the prior six months or four episodes in the prior 12 months. So based on medical records, but also parental report of that particular history, in addition to the presence of an objective sign of current or immediately prior uh, acute otitis media, they use those as the inclusion criteria um, for this study. And they, they randomized them into one of two groups. They had to screen about 1,300 kids to get the 250 kids. And so when they show the consort figure on this in this article, there's a tremendous amount of, of fall off for a whole host of different reasons. So it sort of immediately raises the question of, of, of whether this is a somewhat select population. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, what they what they did was that they assigned 129 children to to receive tube placement and 121 children to receive antibiotics, and then the objectives were looked for over the course of the next 24 months. And the primary outcome was the number of acute otitis media episodes in that 24-month follow-up period. And then they held a whole bunch of secondary outcomes, including the percentage of children with treatment failure, the time to the first episode, the frequency of attacks of acute otitis media, and a number of uh, a number of other ones. And they conducted the study. I think it was over five years, and the results, as were indicated in some of the headlines that Matt talked about previously, was that essentially there was no difference between the two, both for the primary objective as well as for most of the secondary objectives. The trouble was, in my mind, that there was a tremendous amount of crossover, i.e. there were a lot of children in the medical management group who ended up getting two placement in part because the parents insisted on it or for other reasons, and vice versa, there were, oh, I'm sorry, there were there were 13 children who were assigned to placement who did not get it because mm-hmm. the parents didn't want that. And, and conversely, there were about 54 out of 121 children who were assigned antibiotics who, who subsequently ended up getting to placement. So the 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 analysis really censors those children at that at that point and the primary analysis that they present is an intention to treat analysis where they showed no difference between these two groups and even when they did the per protocol analysis analyzing the, the groups to which the children were actually in based on this crossover and they censored those endpoints they still found that there really was no difference between between the two so, you know, my read is that it's probably a better study than studies have been done previously. I'm not thoroughly convinced that that it was a clean enough study or there was enough power to really to, to show this, that there is equivalence between these two groups definitively. Yeah, Chris is Chris is vigorously nodding his head. So, Chris, <laughs> jump in. What's the, you seem like you agree with Don's take on this. Yeah, and and actually, I was sort of I'm, I'm waiting to hear you know the, the volcano fox explode. Oh yeah, because <laughs> this, this this paper is all is, is definitely worshiping with at the temple of Pete. It is. So I I was uh, I had the same feeling for you. I mean, I thought the the crossover issue was a you know was perhaps predictable, but was you know definitely undermined their ability to to come up with a clean answer. But the the main one is that they throughout the paper they basically show that the tympanostomy 
uh, recipients for almost every one of their outcomes. I don't. I think there were there were a couple exceptions, but nearly every one of them trended towards being somewhat better than you know medical management. It was mm-hmm. not a, a a huge difference, but the, there was a consistent difference. And and then to sort of conclude that because we don't hit the canonical value of less than 0.05, therefore they're equivalent. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We know that that is that is breaking a couple rules here. Aren't they really just saying that the trial was underpowered, you know, and they were unable to show a difference? Now you could say that the difference is not a big difference, and if people were expecting the tympanostomy tubes are like you know a huge, you know, hugely effective intervention against recurrent otitis media, you know, they would be disabused of that. But I don't think that many people thought that because kids who have tympanostomy tubes have all sorts of problems. It's, it's rarely a definitive solution, as is the case of of Professor Fox who had to have six of them placed apparently so seven so there you go i mean that's that's not definitive right (laughs) so i was i was irritated by that because i just felt like on the you know the 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 biostats 101 front they kind of flunked this one yeah i so i i have some some issues i mean i do think there is some information that comes out of this trial that is is useful information i will say Going into this, my you know, I always write down what my prior is. I, I grew up with these things, so I just assumed these things worked. You know, my 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 prior was very strong that the tubes, you know, are helpful because otherwise, why else would I have gotten them? It was surprising to me to learn that this was actually something that's controversial. In fact, what I wrote is, why are we doing this study at all? We know they work. But clearly I'm 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 wrong about that. So fair enough. But then if you're gonna try to do the definitive study, you know, 250 kids is is never going to be enough to do the definitive study on this particular question, particularly if you go in skeptical such that you think there may be equivalence between them. You want to be able to sort that out. Then then we get into the issue that that both of you raise, which is the crossover that you have some in the tubes group who didn't get them, some in the no tubes group who did get them. And one way to to try to think about that is you could say, well, you know, let's think about this as a a strategy rather than as, you know, we want to know the effectiveness of the tubes themselves. And the strategy is, you know, we're going to offer you tubes, but if you would prefer to to delay and, you know, try antibiotics and then with the tubes as a backup, that's an option. But this study doesn't even really answer that question because there was sort of multiple options within both arms. So I came away from it feeling like, you know, we didn't really get the answer to any of the questions I really wanted to know. It's a, it's a piece of information, and I don't mean to be completely disparaging because it's, you know, it does provide some more information than we had before. I just don't think it's, you know, I, I was surprised to see this in the New England Journal yeah. after I read it based on what I'd heard on the news. Yeah, because yeah. I think that the news took took the you know the high level summary, which they you know they 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 plugged that in the yeah. discussion that you know these are equivalent, but they are not equivalent. They did not do an equivalency uh, analysis. This was a superiority test, and and you know as we've said over and over and over, you know failure to demonstrate some superiority does not mean equivalence. You know, so I think the the media you know took the wrong message from their high level internal summary, and I was surprised that a statistical reviewer at New England Journal didn't sort of pick up that obvious flaw. Yeah, that that surprised me too. I mean, I, you know, it's it is a trial, and so I think trials get a level of benefit of the doubt that they don't always necessarily deserve. But you know, it's a it's a strong design. 
this trial had a lot of what I'll say is fancy statistics. They're not overly fancy, but you know the the analysis they did was using generalized linear, you know, generalized linear equations. I think you know when you've got a, a, a randomized trial, one of the beautiful things about the randomized trial is you don't need a lot of these fancy statistics. You get the you know you get the primary answer with just your your crude comparison. Now there are reasons why sometimes you want to adjust to get more more power out of out of your subjects but you know uh, there was there was a lot going on for what i thought was a should have been a fairly straightforward trial yeah i think i, I think another another issue that gave me pause was that you know in in addition to this issue with crossover sort of contaminating the the rct aspect of this there was a lot of dropout either mm-hmm. because there was crossover or because they simply stopped the follow-up. So while it was designed for 24 months of follow-up, a relatively small proportion of the entire cohort actually completed the trial. And th- that lack of observation months due to the, the early cessation of a lot of these participants, I think seriously undermined the power or added to the, the low power and the inability to be able to distinguish a difference between these two groups. So it's not only crossover, it's lack of you know, complete follow-up. I wanted to follow up on that because you 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 reminded me of a of a sort of an, a, a curious report in their in their results, which was that the effect size in year one was far higher than the effect size in year two, and I thought that was very interesting. And it, it's not it's not surprising because we know that children age out of otitis media eventually, you know, because you know your anatomy changes and presumably your immunology changes too. But you know, it would it struck me that this is the kind of thing that would tend to make tympanostomy tubes appear very effective because you've put the tubes in and then a year later the kid is much better but was that because of the tubes or was that because they're aging out of otitis media and so of course they're going to look highly effective mm. and so that that sort of like sampling bias and selection bias you know overlaid with natural history of the child could perpetuate the belief that tubes were fantastically effective simply because you do a thing and then the kid gets a year older and the disease goes away and you assume that it was the tube that led to the improvement yeah, that's a really good point. I think one of the statistics that they cite in the paper is that the frequency of otitis media episodes is more than two and a half fold greater in the zero to six month old children than mm-hmm. the 24 to 36 month old children. So there's absolutely a very rapid drop off in the frequency of otitis media as you age. Absolutely. Yep. What you said, Chris. So. I did want to also get to the to the question of whether or not the the headline is that we've looked at were truly accurate. So I just pull out a statistic. They the primary analysis was intention to treat, but as we pointed out, there was a reasonable amount of loss to follow up and crossover, both of which I think would have the tendency of biasing towards the null. Certainly, the crossover would. Yeah, the loss to follow up, I suppose, you know, depends a little depends bit on, on why they lost. Yeah, I mean, presumably, you you this is not a double blind study because you know if you've gotten a tube or not a tube or not, and so you know you could have potential loss to follow up that was related to the to the outcome. But let's let's just say that it isn't, and and both of these would bias towards no effect. Then in this case, the per protocol may in fact 
be more meaningful for anyone who doesn't know the per protocol, meaning we do some adjustments to try and deal with the fact that people didn't exactly follow the intended intervention. And in this case, the the I'll give you the per protocol corresponding rates were blah, 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 which led to a relative risk of 0.8295% confidence interval from 0.69 to 0.97. That is a you know, if you care about statistical significance, a statistically significant benefit of tubes over, you know, antibiotic management. Now, I'm cherry picking because there were other outcomes that they looked at which didn't find a statistically significant benefit. But I'm just pointing to the fact that given this was a small study, given that there were uncertainties due to the loss of follow-up and, and crossovers, it seems to me that if we had found that result the answer we would be saying would have been tubes tubes are better. I'm not saying that because it is a cherry picked result. It's one of of many, but it does, you know, it does make me feel like this this is, you know, it's it's inconclusive results. It's not a a, a definitive, you know, there's no benefit to tympanostomy. Yeah, I agree. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. It's more of a non-finding than it is a finding. That's that that would be my take. Can I, can I just uh, comment on on one of the things that that made me roll my eyes a little bit? Because one of the, 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 the maybe the the single most definitive finding that that was that the kids who had tubes had more odoria, and I was like, well, oh, that, of, of course, course. <laughs> that's the point oh, of the tubes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, like, explain what odoria is. Odoria means stuff draining out of your ear, but that's precisely the point of the tube. Of the tube Unless right. it's plugged, that's what it has to do. Got so, it. all right, a couple of things before we move on here. Can you guys just, you have the paper in front of you? Yeah. yeah. Go to the abstract and pretend you have not read this study. Just looking at the abstract, how many people were in this study? How many kids were randomized? Yeah, it's to not a million. Mentioned. It's not mentioned. It is yeah, not mentioned. Say. How? Yeah, have you ever read a, a, a study in the New England Journal of Medicine, a randomized trial, where you don't know the sample size after reading... Yeah. The abstract. Yeah. So again, what's up with the New England Journal on this one? I don't you know. This, know. this was not a particularly well designed or executed study, and the, the the reporting of it was dodgy. I mean, all of this it seems like the, you know the copy editors, even if they said that you know, you know, we live in a world where there's there's very little evidence about you know the comparative efficacy of tubes versus medical management, and this is a terribly important question, so we're going to accept a flawed study. You'd still think that so and say add the N, yeah, <laughs> to the abstract. It, it just kind of kind of surprised me. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was really interesting about this study is the discussion is four short paragraphs. Yeah. 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 Which just you know I'm not a huge fan of discussion sections, so it's not a you know it's not a big critique to me. But it, you know like you got one paragraph to restate your your results. You know the limitations ends up being a sentence. It, it, you know. And and they and they don't compare it to any of the prior work. Yeah. So there's, there's no, there, there are, I'm looking at it now. There are no in-text citations in the entire discussion. It's yeah. a little a little strange. Uh, you know, just kind of made me made me wonder. I I, I would just correct one thing, Chris. I, I I'm not sure. I think that it wasn't a uh, that it was a poorly designed study. You know, there were there were issues with the with the. Well, I guess by design, maybe you mean sample size, which I suppose is you know you'd, you'd want to see a bigger study. So yeah. Any any last thoughts before we move on? Yeah, uh, I, Matt, I, I I wonder if you had thoughts about 
I believe it was in the study where they described the sample size requirement and they used 90% power in order to come up with the 250. And I thought that that was a little stringent. Yeah. And also like expecting a a, a really strong effect size, therefore, because 90% power with only 250 kids, you you, you got to figure that they thought that tympanostomy tubes were going to be crackerjack. Yeah. Well, well, wait, to, wait, to wait, get wait, away wait. with that. Wait, no, no, sorry. More power. Ninety percent power is is no no no. I I, I know what I'm saying. So like you know when you when you do ninety percent power, you're 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 bas- you're basically being more conservative, and so you're demanding more of your sample size. And if you're keeping if the sample size is small, that that must mean that you expected the effect size to be very large. Oh, um, I, I'm not sure. I totally agree with the first statement, but I do agree with the the second statement that that given you know if you if you got a smaller sample size with the higher bar of ninety percent. If you if you ended up with a smaller sample size, you were probably anticipating a larger effect. Yeah, I, I, I buy you that. You explained logic. that better than I did. Yes, yeah, I buy, that's, I, that's I buy, what I'm. I buy that logic. Yeah, I guess. Do they do they tell us what the so I, so Don to answer your question? I mean, ninety percent is fairly standard for trials, but I, I I take Chris's point that you know I don't know what the effect size they were powering this. They said thirty three percent. Thirty three percent rate of episodes yeah. was yeah. was mm. their their expected uh, effect size. Huh. 90% power to detect that would be with 250. I, I So one thing to keep in mind is their outcome. And I, I think my, my guess is this was probably intentional, given that they were going to do a smaller trial. You know, their outcome wasn't a proportion like we often see in trials, because you're going to have to have a, a larger sample size often with that. Their outcome was rate of episodes per year. So it's a it's a continuous measure, I, be, I believe, right? They express yeah. it as one point four eight plus or minus point zero eight. So you've got a fairly narrow standard error around a, a mean. Uh, a little bit easier to detect a, a difference there, I think. And I suspect that's part of why they chose that as their outcome, as opposed to just some standard measure of you know are the kids do the kids have a repeat ear infection or or something like that. Mm-hmm. I also I'm curious because I you know I don't know the field, but wouldn't wouldn't improved hearing also be one of the benefits of of tubes potentially? Probably, but but I think it is fairly difficult. Well, Don would know this better. That I think in in young children is it's relatively tricky to figure out to measure hearing loss. But I I, I don't know that well. Don, we, you, we're trying to do that in Zix in the Zix study. Yeah. What, yeah, what but, do you know about this? But well, yeah, no, no, we're doing that on newborns, and and you, 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 it's not really a matter of um, eliciting the child's ability to necessarily have complete hearing. It's 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 sort of more of a reactive tympanic membrane responsiveness that we're measuring at. The six in a child. So mm-hmm. I, I, for older kids and, and hearing testing, I really, I really don't know what the standard would be and, and what the, what the prevalence of, of hearing loss as a sequelae of recurrent otitis media is. We know it, it exists, but I just don't know how frequent it is. Maybe mm. we have to do a follow-up with Julie Hurley afterwards and learn a little, little bit more about this. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. All right, let's let's move on to our second segment where we're going to talk about the role of international funders of research. And, you know, we are, the three of us, 
all work in, in global health. So I think this one is of particular interest to us. This was motivated by a paper that Chris found in Nature Medicine. It was by first author Ngozi Irandu entitled Open Letter to International Funders of Science and Development in Africa. And, you know, I won't go through the whole letter, but they talk a little bit about a, a large uh, announcement of a, of a very large grant by the, the I believe it was Path. Uh, to Path. For the president's uh, malaria initiative, that's the uh, you know U.S. government funding stream, which funded a uh, uh, was to fund a consortium of seven institutions in the U.S., U.K., and Australia to support African countries in improved use of data for decision making in malaria control and elimination. And as the authors point out, not one African institution was named in the press release. And then they go on to talk about the fact that you know over the past year. Particularly with COVID going on, there have been been calls from various public health entities for equality and inclusion. So you would think that this would also extend to, you know, initiatives intended to support Africa, particularly with a, a long history of of problematic funding, you know, in in the past. And so they were writing this letter to funders, essentially a, a, an open letter to call for more of a, a shared mission, more of inclusion of, of African institutions. You know, we all work with partners in Sub-Saharan Africa where there are amazing scientific institutes that have, you know, extensive experience working on many of the the issues that we are, you know, trying to, to work on. They talk specifically in this one about Kemri, the Kenya, uh, I'm going to get it wrong because I'm doing it off the top, but the Kenya Medical Research Institute, which has been well supported by the Wellcome Trust in looking at malaria over the years. So there, there are a lot of, uh, you know, institutions in, in Africa and, and throughout the world who have strong capabilities and, you know, are obviously deeply embedded in the, in the communities in which they're working. So I suppose the, the question to start with is, you know, Chris, I'll start with you because you brought this one up. What was it that, in you know, interested you about this particular call that made you want to talk about it? Sure. So, you know, I just finished, you know, we just finished up our semester and, and I had the, the great pleasure of teaching the Global Health 760 course, which is Foundations of Global Health with our colleague, Jen Beard. And um, recurrently through the semester, we talked about the decolonization of global health and, mm -hmm. and how global health has sort of had really kind of a very um, checkered isn't even, even too charitable, but sort of exploitative uh, history. Um, you know, one thinks about the, you know, the major centers for public uh, global health research, uh, the Liverpool School, the London School, the Antwerp School, you know, uh, et cetera. And, and the, you know, even the Pasteur Institute. And, and, you know, one thinks about these as, you know, you know, in the current day, in terms of all the, you know, the fantastic science that they generate, which is certainly true, but they were not initially you know, created as as institutes of of you know science, they were tools of colonialism. You know, mm -hmm. it was figuring out how do we allow our colonists who are who are you know 
administering these countries that we've taken over, how do we stop them from dying of tropical diseases? So that was the motive, rather than how do we help the people in the countries that we have colonized? It was mm -hmm. really, how do we help the colonizers survive their attempts to colonize? And so that that is a very ugly, you know, part of our history. And I, you know, and I'm sort of thinking about this, um, you know, where where do we go with this? And, and I, I think more and more our community is very... I think sensitive to this idea that you know you know we have to sort of account for our history and maybe atone for it in different ways, you know symbolically and and directly and and what they were pointing to what these these uh, you know young uh, African scientists were saying I assume they're young was that that we have had this opportunity here and we flunked it and what a pity you know mm -hmm. and as for all the reasons you say there's there's no reason why we would you know this grant should not have been a partnership between african and us academic institutions to, or or ministries even at least some local partner or some local stakeholder to engage in like how do we develop these these data management systems so that they are not just useful to us to path to you know the us and european research centers but how are they useful to the countries in which we are working and they didn't and and it just struck me is so sad that that opportunity had yet been missed. Yeah, I, I would agree with you, Chris, that that was the reaction that I had as well. Um, you know, we, you know, we think a lot about this in our, our, the grants that we apply for, you know, most of my work is in, in South Africa, which, you know, we, I mean, the expertise there is, you know, they, they know more about many of the things that we're working on than we do. We often can provide some statistical or epidemiologic expertise that they may not have, although often they have that as well. It's just sort of lacking in in volume. But in terms of you know knowing the the issues, they they know all the things we know very little. And so you know often we are the the subcontractor to to them because you know they're the ones primed to do the the work, and we are in the the supporting role. And I think more and more we need to to think about that model because it I think it you know it it recognizes that the the expertise is is there not not here. Don what was your reaction to this this call? Yeah, let me push back on on this cuz I I I fundamentally disagree. Mm. I I I don't disagree that we need to speed up a transformation that we're in the process of engaging in which is transfer of capability and of uh, scientific capability from the developed world to the developing world. But having been in the field for 30 years, having started out in you know the late 80s in the Congo and having worked in the subcontinent, uh, the Asian subcontinent, as well as a lot in Africa over the course of those 30 years, I have seen an absolutely tremendous development of our African colleagues and the scientific capability. And it has been one of the most gratifying experiences of my life professionally to see how what progress has been made amongst our colleagues, both individual researchers as well as institutions. Chris and I work in Zambia and have been doing so for a long time. And there's an organization there called CIDRS, which is a Center for Infectious Diseases Research Zambia, which is probably only about 12 or 15 years, years old. And it is an absolutely state-of-the-art laboratory and scientific research collaborator. And mm -hmm. it was started by people from University of Alabama and the University of North Carolina, and over the course of the last four years has become completely nationalized. It's run yeah. by Zambians, and they do fantastic work there. I think that we, while 
being really sensitive to the whole idea of decolonization of global health. I think it's really important that we appreciate the fact that there naturally will be a conduit in terms of discovery and information that goes from the developed world to the developing world. And we need to keep that open while at the same time making sure that our African colleagues are given all of the opportunities to take the lead in these sorts of projects. But there's all kinds of discovery, like, for instance, the genetic surveillance of COVID variants. You know, that is a technology that has been, de- is, has been available in the developed world really for only the last five years. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And the ability to be able to do it at scale, like is being done in Europe, and is now being done by the African CDC, I think is a really important conduit of technology that needs to remain open and that we that we we don't we don't sort of say, okay, let's de- completely quote decolonize the scientific endeavor in Africa and shut that door and not have it evolve into a truly equal collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think that's what we're arguing for, really. I, I mean, I, I, I take all your points that there's been tremendous progress. I, I think what we are, or what the authors here are endorsing, and what caught my attention was the, you know, the lost opportunity to sort of extend that philosophy uh, into this very large and presumably uh, impactful body of work that's coming out uh, that's been awarded to PATH. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. I'm totally on board with that. But I think to underscore the point that I'm trying trying to make, it seems to me kind of ironic that the that the institutional affiliation of the authors is the Aspen Institute in Washington, D.C., Georgetown University, the Harvard, Harvard Chan. Chan School of Public Health, the African Population Health Research Center, and I don't know who supports them, but the Wellcome Trust is supporting the well, the Kemri Welcome Trust research program. And I think Ifikara has been, the Ifikara Health Institute in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, has been supported, I believe, by the Institute for Tropical Medicine in Belgium for a long time. So, you know, so so the, the platform upon which they're standing has been created in part by these, these collaborations. And I think it would be doing a disservice to our African colleagues and global health altogether to not try to continue to foster those. But I do agree with the basic tenets of their critique, which is that this was a missed opportunity to put our African colleagues forward at the head of the line, which I think a lot of us in global health tend to do anyway. You know, we tend to be, I, I think those of us who are who have been doing it for a long time and are really sincere tend to be either shadow advisors or shadow scientists. And oftentimes we're put, you know, we are putting our African colleagues um, ahead of us in line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think we are actually agreeing more than than we think here, because I, I'm certainly not suggesting that we wouldn't want to continue to support, you know, to, to, to build these collaborations or to transfer knowledge or any of those things. I, I think it's it's much more, though, that the, the transfer of knowledge should be going in two directions, you know, that we oh, have, absolutely. And, yeah. and, and I think that we are, you know, by by putting our if if we put our our colleagues in in we don't put them out front whether you know it's just by virtue of of where the funding is coming from you know uh, not prioritizing our our colleagues or it's something in the way that we conduct our our work that would be a a real shame mm-hmm. you know Indeed. let me just let me just speak to one other point that I think that they were making that I I think that they were saying it's important for a whole bunch of reasons amongst which 
is that we have a lived experience that people who are not born and raised and living in Africa don't have, and that's completely valid. Plus, it's really important for us to help facilitate the connection with the ministries of health so that the findings can be translated into public health policy to the benefit of the people on whom the research is is, is being conducted. And uh, you know that, that sort of is in distinction to what we pejoratively call safari research, which mm-hmm. I think all of us recoil from the whole idea of that. And I think certainly the, the, the people in the Department of Global Health at Boston University and many of the colleagues that I have at other institutions feel very, very strongly about uh, making sure that the applied research that we do is translated directly into policy. And we invite the, the members of government in to participate in the research from the very beginning. And I, I think that's one of the basic tenets that really is, is really important. And I think that not all researchers adhere to, but I think a lot of a, a lot of people who, whose heart is in the right place do adhere to that. Mm-hmm. If I may, one of the things that I'm I'm sort of curious about in terms of where this is going is, you know, as the movement to so-called decolonize uh, global health research, you know, evolves from being sort of a, a leadership and subordinate relationship to a true partnership, which is what we all want this to be, is to, is to have it become equal. You know, at the same time at, that that the United States and and Europe, and I suppose to a lesser degree, Japan, though I don't, I don't know much about how CETA, is that JICA, excuse me. You, you know, I don't know how their granting works, but you know, I'm familiar with with NIH and CDC and USAID and Gates, and to a lesser degree, the MRC in, in the United Kingdom. But you know, at, at the same time as as we are sort of renegotiating our relationships with the, the countries that we we work with and the, on our colleagues, uh, at the same time, there's this tremendous economic development of Africa occurring by China. And, and I and I sort of wonder, like on some level, is, is there like a recolonization occurring as a decolonization is occurring from the West, it's shifting to the East. But it's not through research. It's not through, you know, the establishment of, of tropical disease research centers. It's through economic ownership of these countries. And it, it has de facto become a neocolonization, mm-hmm. you know, with another, another face. I'm probably going to, you know, attract negative attention from that. But um, sorry, Dean Galea, but uh, but it, I think it's it's really interesting, and I haven't seen much discussion about that and what its long term implications are. All right, so I think that's a, a good place to leave it. Let's head on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing segment, and I'm going to go first because I have a, a a pretty short thing that I found pretty fascinating, but I'm curious. How do you both feel about the idea of the genetically modified mosquitoes? Oh, I love them. Frankenskeeters. You're, 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 Don's in favor. Chris, how do you feel about them? Um, as a way of destroying the human race, I think it's a terrific idea. Okay. So Is that we where we're see, going? No, uh, this was just, you know, so genetically modified mosquitoes have been something that I remember learning about when I took one of my, you know, was doing my master's back in, you know, the 2000, 2001, being talked about and and worked on as a way to potentially reduce the mosquito population or to reduce particular kinds of mosquitoes that are particularly uh, implicated in in disease spread. And it was always talked about in relation to malaria. And so the idea was you, you create a mosquito that cannot reproduce. And by doing that, you then if you release these mosquitoes, they may could go out and out compete the mosquitoes that that can 
reproduce and you know over the generations then you get less and less and potentially it has an impact on disease well there's been you know been talked about in in relation to malaria for a long time but what i found really interesting is that uh it's now finally being tried in florida so mm. in may they did the the first release of genetically modified mosquitoes a company called oxitech uh-huh. it's a, a british firm that developed a Aedes aegypti mosquito, a male that cannot generate offspring. Do I have that right? Is it's they can so they can breed with the the females. The males don't die, but then they become carriers of the gene that will pass on to future generations, leaving fewer and fewer females. So I guess the the females then end up dying without breeding. And so you end up getting a reduction in the population over time. It's been extremely controversial, as you would expect. And so it took them about a decade to go from uh, proposing this to actually getting them the permission to actually release them. And so, you know, now we will go on and find out what actually happens as well as, you know, to see if there are any implications for the rest of the, you know, the, the environment in which they're released in. But I just thought it was, you know, it was really interesting to see that these are are finally being released, in, you know, here in the U.S. to try and and deal with the um, you know things like Zika. So, just thought it was was a pretty cool story. Yeah, yeah. I, I I got one thing to say though, which is, don't you remember Jurassic Park and Jeff Goldblum saying, "Nature will find a way." <laughs> and maybe that is true. Uh, so, by the way, one of the things I thought was really interesting, they say that to to monitor the progress of this trial, they're going to you know use these capture devices to trap mosquitoes and then measure how far the the male mosquitoes, the ones that have been released, how far they've traveled outside of these the boxes that they're released in, how long they live, and how effectively they squelch the, the wild female mosquito population. The mosquitoes carry a fluorescent marker gene that makes them glow when exposed to a specific color of light, which oh, makes cool. them easy to identify, which I thought was pretty... Awesome and scary at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, the, the whole concept is, is 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 called gene drive, and it allows them to manipulate that certain genes get that get passed through subsequent generations, and then result in a, a homogeneous sex population of mosquitoes, like you're talking about. But there are also manipulations that they can put into this gene drive system that provides an escape after something like 10 or 12 generations so that Mm. if you are able to extinguish a population in the local area and one of those mosquitoes happens to escape into another area, there will be, in in essence, a a, a time clock that will then end that subsequent um, passage of of the the gene on. So it, it, it sort of automatically snuffs itself out in the event that it gets beyond the intended population or geographic area. Interesting. What I don't understand about this the strategy and 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 we should we should I should just acknowledge that the things I don't understand about this strategy could fill an encyclopedia. I don't I don't understand the entomology, I don't understand the molecular biology, I don't understand m- the population ecology. I don't understand much about this. But what I do know is that mosquitoes have got a really good track record of evolving like crazy mm. to uh to, to hang in there and there are a heck of a lot of them. So that their their genetic plasticity as a as a population is enormous. I mean, think about yeah. the history of anti uh, you know insecticide use and how every every chemical we throw at them eventually and actually generally quite quickly they find a way around that. 
So I, I, I don't know, sort of figure that these mosquitoes are not going to be a sitting target. And so I don't understand how manipulating a gene in a subpopulation is going to fight against the immense tsunami of evolutionary pressure to survive. Part, part of it may be that I, I, I described it poorly. So the idea here is that the, the females are the ones that are, are biting. So they're the ones that you want to get rid of. The males have a gene which they can pass on. That was the part I think I, I misspoke about. Gene that can pass on, which causes the, the females to die in the larval stage. So the females are just simply not born. That's what happens. So you just get it, it, it just get fewer and fewer females over time. Chris continues to look skeptical. Well, I, again, I say like, you know, this this sounds like a way of of uh, trying to reduce the population of mosquitoes, of course. And I I have to imagine that the mosquitoes are their their evolutionary eagerness is going to resist. Yep. Certainly. <laughs> this Could attempt be. to be eradicated. Could so be. I, uh, Could be. Yep. I, I would love to be uh, have my skepticism Fair um, enough. Uh, disproven here. But I am I'm, I'm deeply skeptical that this is going to work. Enough. But I, want to take, I want to take a peek in that encyclopedia of non-knowledge of yours, Chris. It's, yeah, me too. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger every day. All right, Chris, enough mosquitoes. What do you got for us? So I wanted to uh, take advantage of last weekend, which was Memorial Day weekend as the unofficial start of summer, to talk about a topic that is of incredible uh, importance to us all, which is the origin of watermelons. Mm, okay. Yep. So Important there was stuff. a there was a story in the New York Times that that pointed me towards this article in PNAS about the, the the genetic origins of the modern cultivated watermelon, which was really interesting and charming. And the the, the New York Times article came with a, a charming photograph of a group of lemurs eating watermelons and looking super pleased with themselves. It had nothing to do with anything, of course, because the whole article itself hinges on the origins of the watermelon. The modern watermelon is something that grew up in in Sudan, and I don't think there are a lot of lemurs in Sudan, but it made for a charming photograph at any rate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a couple of years ago, Don, you and I um, went to the Ig Nobel Awards and there was this um, segment where they talk about, they, they say something very complicated in scientific ease um, and then it's translated into something very simple. And one of them was like, human thinks that thinks that humans think robots sound dumb when they talk. <laughs> and it, it was sort of like this, because the, the beginning of this article, uh, and I'll just read the, the, uh, the caption to you, because PNAS is very, a very techie uh, journal. It says, wild relatives or progenitors of crops are important resources for breeding and for understanding domestication, identifying them. However, it is difficult because of extinction, hybridization, and the challenge of distinguishing them from feral forms. Here we use collection-based systematics, iconography, and resequenced accessions of citrullus lanatus and other species of citrullus to search for the potential progenitor of the domesticated watermelon. Oof. And you could just like substitute that for that. We did an experiment to find out where watermelons came from. <laughs> <laughs> And so, yep. <laughs> so it turns out that this this is actually kind of a fascinating question because in that caption, they, they that that segment, they talk about the iconography, and in that section of the paper, the iconography they're referring to is is ancient paintings from of the walls of the tomb of the pharaoh 
Kunumhotep, Kunumhotep from 4,450 BC. And on the, on the wall is a painting of a table laden with delicious fruits, one of which is clearly a watermelon. It's mm. like this big oblong thing with green stripes down the middle. And, and so they're like, you know, it, it's in a pharaoh's tomb. So obviously the, the, the ancient Egyptians were eating watermelons, you know, 8,000 years ago. So it's a, it's a pretty good bet that watermelons, like the modern watermelon, must have originated somewhere near Egypt. And and, and and that is relevant because there have been all these theories about whether it's North Africa, South Africa, East Africa, you know, Southern Africa, or where. But um, back in the 1930s, there was a, a leading theory that it was a South African watermelon that was the progenitor. But then they did some complicated genetic sequencing, and they found that that melon has no genetic linkage to the water, modern watermelon whatsoever. But what they did find is that there's this this sort of fruit called the Cordofan watermelon found in South Darfur, which looks like for all the world, the, the painting of the melon that was on the Pharaoh's tomb. And, and it's, it's a bitter melon. And the thing about this melon is that it tastes horrible. It has white flesh, not pink flesh. It is bitter and it is not sweet. And so mm. it is, and it is maybe slightly even poisonous. And so you would definitely not want to eat these things. But that was their leading candidate because it looked so much like this. And so they, they did a, a complicated genetic sequencing analysis of all these melons from around Africa. And they, they proved in a, in a very complicated way that I can't really give justice to, that it was indeed the Cordofan melon that was the progenitor of the modern watermelon. But the really fascinating part of this is the answer to three questions, which is why are modern watermelons red, not white? Why are they not bitter, like the Cordorphan melon? And why are they sweet, unlike the Cordorphan melon? And there's, and the a, there's a specific genetic answer to each one of them. So the red comes from the accumulation of a pigment called lycopene. L-Y-C-O-P-N-E, which is a precursor to carotene. And the modern watermelon lacks an enzyme that converts lycopene into carotene. And so it stops at the lycopene stage and is therefore pink. Good to know. Good to Why know. is it not bitter? Because there is a, uh, a gene called cucurbitacin. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, which tastes terrible. But the modern watermelon has a faulty cucurbitacin gene and therefore is not bitter. And then the last one is that the, the sweetness comes from a sucrosynthase enzyme, which has been upregulated through selection over the, over the millennia to create more sugar. And that is why the modern watermelon is pink, sweet, and not bitter. And there you go. And I just thought that was so important to know. And and we'll, to heck with the lemurs. Why did they need to do this study, Chris? Everybody knows all of those things. <laughs> Everybody knows that. Wow, that is uh, that is some uh, next level information. There, it was a fantastic is, bit of science. That is a really a really deep dive on the watermelon. There you That's go. What we call extraneous information. Yeah. Things you don't definitely don't need to know, but have always wondered about. Possibly. Always wondered. Yep. All right, Don, what do you got? So I, I wanted to uh, sort of put a, uh, a, a pitch in for the cicada. Oh, cool. I know that the cicada is something that uh, there are certain parts of the, of the country that are talking about it incessantly and other parts of the, of the country that are not talking about it at all. And most of the people that I speak to about this whole phenomenon, this, the periodical cicada, which uh, we, are, we are in parts of our country in the midst of, People are either absolutely repulsed by the idea of cicadas or completely fascinated by the idea of the cicadas. And I am one of the latter. And I, over the course of the last month and a half, have made three four-hour trips from Boston 
down to northern New Jersey, which is the northernmost extent of the brood 10 cicada outbreak. And I don't think I was in an area where the cicadas were a prominent 17 years ago. So I really went out of my way. And the first time I went a little bit too early and the little larvae were just coming out of the ground and beginning to sort of shed their their shells and come out, but not to any great extent. And then the last time I went down there was an epiphanal experience. It was one of the most amazing things I have experienced. I went to Princeton, which is a college town in Northern New Jersey, and there's a cemetery in the middle of Princeton, and it's got all these really big old growth trees. And because the cicadas come out of the ground, climb up the trunk, shed their shell, and then go up into the tree and make this thunderous sound and mate, and then they drop their eggs at the base of the tree, and then they die. The, the tree is sort of the, the, the epicenter of these mini epidemics of cicada. And you walk along, and these trees are thrumming. I mean, it is so loud, it's measured in high levels of decibels. And it's really fascinating because there's three different species of cicada, and each has sort of a different call. And one species, the entire tree sort of goes into a sequence of a waxing and waning level, a frequency and loudness level. So you're walking by and it just sounds like there's this tremendous, like, like there's a, the sound of a, of, a, of a locomotive going by, but it's, it's, it's getting louder and softer and louder and softer. And then there's this another species whose call, it's called the pharaoh species, and whose call is pharaoh. Fair, mm. and you, you get close to this thing and you can just absolutely hear that and you can see their thorax wiggle as they're making these sounds and then they hook up and then they they die and they drop to the base of the tree and you walk along and you look down at the base of the tree and there are tens i mean literally tens of thousands of cicada carcasses at the base of the tree some are alive, some are half dying, some are dead, and they form this tremendous amount of protein source and nitrogen source for the trees. And their evolutionary advantage is that they come out in such great numbers that they that's called satiety uh, method. So they, they, they come out in such great numbers that they absolutely overwhelm the predators. Mm. So while, you, while you're walking along and you're listening to this, you're also seeing sort of chipmunks and squirrels kind of lolling about all fat. <laughs> and, it's and like the, 4th happy, of until the barbecue at the 4th of July, right? Yeah, the buffet. Yeah, it, it really is. You know, and, and, and so then the question is, you know, what happens to the normal predators that, you know, that, that, the, that they keep in, 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 in uh, in control, like the ten caterpillars and stuff, it's it's an absolutely amazing experience. That if anybody has an opportunity to experience experience it, they they really really should. It's just a, oh the other wow. the other really cool thing about it is that there's several broods, and each brood has a different periodicity. So the brood ten has seventeen years. There's another brood that is thirteen years, and a third brood that I believe is seven years. And it's it's notable that their periodicity are prime numbers. I was going to say, what's yeah, up with that? Yeah, And that, the, the spe- nobody knows. The speculation is that that keeps them out of any kind of regular sequencing oh, yeah. with the population of the predators. Math. Here yeah. it is. Yeah, here it is. Math and math in, 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 so in the cool. words. Don, you said that there were several species of cicadas there. Does that mean that there's a there are different 
there are different species of cicada that are aligned on the 17-year cycle? Yes, yes. Wow. This brood, brood 10, has three separate species. That's incredible. So it really does argue for the math argument. Yeah. 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 That is so cool. That's fascinating. I'm I'm envious. Good for you. Yeah, Yeah. I have to say I was down in Maryland for the Memorial Day weekend, and I did not see any of them. So I missed out. There's one week left. There was a cold cold spell over Memorial Day weekend. And interestingly, because it got so cold that – all of the cicadas went silent. So it's like somebody flipped a switch, it went off. And now because we have a heat wave back, they're uh, they're back. But they're all going to be gone in another week. I saw a a fascinating segment on uh, on a news clip of all the people down in Cicada land who were calling into the local police departments complaining about all the fire alarms that were going off. (laughs) (laughs) But it was the cicadas. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is fascinating. Yeah. All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you get any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to have a study or a topic you want us to take on, you could tweet us at, at @pophealthyx, or you could tweet me at, at @prof_matt_fox, or Don at, at @dthea1, or Chris at id.gill, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali, an assistant dean of lifelong learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast. And Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you have enjoyed it and we'll download our next episode. <laughs> <laughs>